Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you. I have missed this view for the most part. I've missed it all. I really have. And it is thrilling for Allison and I to have the opportunity to be back in Texas in Glenrose and back, of course, at Grace Community Church. I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians. Over the past couple of months, I've had an opportunity or two to preach from chapter one, and as I have studied it and meditated upon it, uh, I personally have been challenged on many levels. And one in particular, I have been challenged as to the nature of a gospel-centered life. What does it mean to live a gospel-centered life? The Apostle Paul, the year is 60, 61. So we're way back in the first century. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey, and now they are living and serving in the city of Antioch in Syria. And they have been there for some time, and they decide the moment has arrived to embark on a second missionary journey to visit, again, all of those churches that they had planted on their first journey. They divide. You know the sad story. I'm sure most of us are familiar with it. They separate. And they separate over the issue as to whether or not to take Mark along with them. Because Mark had abandoned them during the first journey. And they separate. Barnabas takes uh, Mark. They head in one direction. And Paul takes a man named Silas. And they head in the other direction. And they begin to walk northward, westward, through Syria into modern-day Turkey, what was then called Asia Minor. And they visit the cities, the towns, the villages, and in particular those churches which Paul had planted on his first journey. And they arrive at the city of Lystra, more or less southern, central, modern-day Turkey. And there they encounter a young man named Timothy. And they recruit Timothy. And Timothy will become, of course, one of Paul's most trusted, faithful co-laborers. They continue to move west. Now this apostolic band, Paul, Timothy, Silas, they make it all the way to the western shore of Asia Minor. They're in the city of Troas. And I think this is where Luke joins them. Because as we read of this in Acts chapter 16, in the narrative until that point, he is using the third person plural, they, they, they. And then all of a sudden in Troas, it's we, we, we. And so you've got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy, you've got Luke, perhaps others. And there they are now on the western shore of Asia Minor, the city of Troas. And Paul receives a vision. And in this vision, a man from Macedonia appears and says to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the apostolic band make their first foray into Europe. And they cross the Aegean Sea on a boat. And they arrive at the city of Philippi. 
It's a Roman colony, mostly Gentiles. No synagogue, which means what? There aren't even 10 Jewish men. Because in those days, in order to construct a synagogue, you needed at least 10 Jewish men in the city, in the town. There aren't even 10 Jewish men, no synagogue. And so on a Sabbath, Paul, Barnabas, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, they head down to the river where they presume there might be a place of prayer. And sure enough, there's this group of women huddled together, gathered together on the banks of the river, and they're praying with one another. And Paul begins to preach the gospel. He begins to unfold the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins undoubtedly to speak of sin, judgment, the holiness of God, the sacrifice, the offering of Christ, and the need for these women to place their faith in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Lydia, a seller of purple fabric. She's converted. Her entire household, baptized. And so this goes on for some time, day after day, perhaps, certainly on the Sabbath. This apostolic band would gather with these women, these new converts by the river, this place of prayer. So that Paul can further instruct them in the scriptures. But on one particular morning, a little girl, demon-possessed, begins to follow them, crying out. These are the messengers of God most high. Now to a Gentile audience, what did that mean? God Most High, not Yahweh. God Most High, what did that mean? Zeus. So Paul turns, fixes his gaze on this little girl in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what? Make no mistake as to who is God Most High. In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. That's the beginning of his troubles. She's a slave, demon-possessed, fortune teller. At least they think she's a fortune teller. Quite lucrative to her owners. And so there is this rabble and this ruckus. And they arrest, they manage to seize Paul and Silas, haul them off before the magistrates in the marketplace, and right there, without any trial, any question, strip them and beat them with rods. And they throw them, bruised, bloodied, battered, broken, into the prison cell. And there in the midst of the night, in Acts 16, in the darkness, in the quiet of that darkness, we read that Paul and Silas were praying and singing unto the Lord. You can imagine the prisoners listening to that and wondering, what is going on here? What are these? Who are these men? Suddenly, the entire place shakes. There's a tremor, an earthquake, and their chains are loosed. The doors burst wide open. The jailer awakens from his sleep, sees the open door, assumes the worst, the Prisoners have fled, draws his sword. He's about to kill himself. And all of a sudden, out of the darkness, the midst of the prison cell, he hears this voice, we're all here. And the jailer, but one question on his mind at that point, what must I do to be saved? And Paul fixes his gaze on him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. At that moment, the jailer believes he and his household baptized. And there's the church established in the city of Philippi. The next morning, the magistrates realize what they've done. They've beaten a Roman citizen without trial. Big no-no. They apologize and ask him to leave the city. They leave. They leave that local church, we know, consisting of at least Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer who remains nameless and his household. 
And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they head through Macedonia further down into Greece before catching a boat all the way back to their home church in Antioch in Syria to report of all the things the Lord had done during their journey. Paul will head out on a third journey some years later. He will again visit Philippi at least twice. What happened? We have absolutely no idea. But I can only imagine the joy as he again encountered Lydia and her home, the Philippian jailer and his home, others serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord. At the end of his third missionary journey, he's determined to go to the city of Jerusalem. He's been taking an offering for the saints there. There's been a famine in the land. And he's taken this offering from among the Gentile churches in Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Macedonia. And he is determined to go to Jerusalem and to be at Jerusalem by Passover. And once there, within a few days, he is unceremoniously arrested. And they're out for blood. They want him dead. He knows he's not going to receive a fair trial. And so as a Roman citizen, what does he do? I appeal to Caesar. And off Paul goes under the guard of a centurion, making that long, difficult, arduous journey all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. The year is now somewhere maybe 62 or maybe a year or two later. And there he sits now a prisoner under the watchful eye of a Roman guard. The believers in the church at Philippi hear of this. Somehow word filters back to them. They're concerned about Paul. They want to minister to the apostle Paul in his hour of need. And so they send one of their own, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, to make that long journey from the city of Philippi to the city of Rome to deliver a financial offering to support Paul and to come alongside and encourage the apostle Paul in his hour of need. In response, what does Paul do? You guessed it. He writes this letter. And he writes this letter to thank them profusely. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. And he writes them to assure them that Epaphroditus is okay. Because soon after Epaphroditus arrived in Rome, he became sick, deathly ill. He had bounced back. He had recovered. But the church at Philippi had heard that he was ill on his deathbed. So Paul writes this letter to assure them, no, he's okay, and he'll soon rejoin you. And he writes them in the third place to do what? To exhort them to live for Christ, to live a gospel-centered life. Follow along. I know it's lengthy, but it's beautiful how Paul, just as, as his emotions pour forth in the written word, it's lengthy. But follow along as I now read Philippians chapter 1 in its entirety. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No surprise there. That's Paul's typical introduction greeting in all of his epistles. Now pay close attention as I read on in verse 3. And listen, you young ones, listen, especially. Paul's going to use the word gospel six times. See if you can catch them all. Verse 3. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the, pause for effect, gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Did you get all six? Let me focus on them for a moment just to make sure. The first, verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel. 
Second, right at the end of verse 7, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The third in verse 12, right at the end, the advance of the gospel. Verse 16, right at the end, the defense of the gospel. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And right at the end of the same verse, verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I have been challenged by Paul, by his example, and by what he says in his epistle to the Philippians as to the nature of what it means to live. A gospel-centered life. When we think of the gospel, oh, it's a word packed with significance, isn't it? When we think of what the gospel is, when we think of what it means, we are embarking on something extremely significant, the magnitude of which we struggle to get our arms around and fully grasp. And when it comes to the gospel, just in its simplest form, I always find it best to look at it, analyze it, consider it from two different vantage points, two different vantage points. We do this with a lot of things. You know, when we want to really understand something, we'll look at it from different angles, different vantage points. We'll try to look at it from above. We'll look at it from below. We'll turn it this way. We'll turn it that way. A couple of times in the past year, I've had the opportunity to visit, to Cal visit Calgary, Alberta. Calgary, Alberta, right next door to the Rockies. And the last time I flew in there, it was magnificent. It's about a four-hour flight from Toronto to Calgary. And on this particular occasion, as we're traveling east to west, for whatever reason, I suppose the pilot was just following the advice, more than advice, of the air traffic controller. Okay, you're going to land on this runway. The pilot went north, banked, turned around, and landed heading south. I was sitting on the right side of the plane, the window right there, and there were the Rockies. In all of their wonder and glory, awe-inspiring. And as far as the eye can see, this vantage point up and above them all, and having arrived in Calgary, a couple of days later had the opportunity to drive into among the Rockies. Very different angle, very different vantage point. No longer looking at them from above in their entirety, or at least that which I could see of them, but now in among them, this particular mountain, that particular mountain, and feeling so small before their greatness, and again, awe-inspiring. We need to see the gospel just like that. There are times when it comes to the gospel that we need to get up above. We need to see the big picture. We need to see the cosmic significance of the gospel, the universal significance of the gospel, or what Paul celebrates in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, or at least around there, that God has reconciled all things to himself in Christ Jesus. 
And so there we have the universal significance of Jesus Christ. There we have the universal significance of the gospel. There we discover that the Lord Jesus, by virtue, because of, on account of, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, has established a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. He has established it. He has inaugurated it. We are waiting for its consummation, yet future. But we see in Christ his cosmic significance that the gospel impacts the entire universe. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're just not talking about what you and me and what it means for me. We are actually declaring what it means for all creation. That all things have been reconciled to God through Christ. And there is a new heavens and a new earth coming. But you know what? Other times we have to get in and among the gospel. And view it from below. And consider, yes, it's universal significance. But equally important, it's very personal significance. And so Paul goes on there in that same place in Colossians chapter 1 to celebrate the fact that not only has God reconciled all things to himself and established a new heavens and a new earth in Christ Jesus by virtue of the gospel, but God has reconciled me, a sinner, to himself in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, the great problem of my sin and of my rebellion has been dealt with. That at Calvary's cross... By virtue of that substitutionary sacrifice, we see the Lord Jesus, my sin, reckoned to him. And in the Lord Jesus, the penalty for my sin, born in full. And knowing that when I approach God through Christ, I am reconciled to him. And I now enjoy peace with God. This is the personal significance of the gospel. Looking at it from below. And the universal significance of the gospel, its cosmic reality, viewing it from above. And we bring both now to Philippians chapter 1, and we wrestle with this important question. Well, what does a gospel-centered life look like when I really get it? When I understand what God has done universally, and I understand what God has done Personally, how is this translated in my life? And I am going to give you six marks of a gospel-centered life derived from those six references to the gospel in Philippians chapter 1. And to Arthur's horror, there are only five blanks. My mistake, I had sent the notes in, noticed what I had done in the airport Friday morning, too late to change it. Six blanks, all right? Six marks of a gospel-centered life. What does it mean? Firstly, I'm going to move quickly through the first five and then pause and take a little longer with the sixth. Number one, to live a gospel-centered life means partnering. In the gospel. That's exactly what Paul says. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. Making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership. Or your fellowship. In the gospel. Or participation. 
in the gospel from the first day until now. How had they participated with Paul in the gospel? They had participated physically with him in his proclamation of the gospel. They had participated with him later in sending Epaphroditus to Rome to minister to him in his hour of need. They had ministered with him, partnered with him in the gospel by encouraging him spiritually, supporting him financially, and serving him sacrificially. I have been challenged by this. I've been asking myself some very simple questions. Do I enjoy gospel partnerships? Do I have relationships like that? That revolve around the gospel of Christ. That are centered and focused on the Lord Jesus. Do I cultivate relationships at which, at the center of which Christ stands? Am I engaged in encouraging others spiritually? Supporting others financially, serving others sacrificially. A gospel-centered life means we partner in the gospel. Number two, the second mark. A gospel-centered life, what does it mean? It means confirming the gospel. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense. We'll come back to that word defense later in verse 16. For now, I want you to notice the next word in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so a gospel centered life is made manifest in confirming the gospel. How do they confirm the gospel? Paul goes on to tell us in verse eight, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. I count in there that beautiful prayer. Not nowhere near enough time to unpack it, but I count in there at least three marks of what it means to confirm the gospel. They abound in love for one another. That is a confirmation of the reality of the gospel. They approve what is excellent. They chase after it and get after it. That's a confirmation of the gospel. And they are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And a couple of weekends ago, on a very quiet morning, as I was doing my devotions just outside the front window of our home, I was wrestling with this text and this entire idea. Wrestling with this very personal question. Do I confirm the gospel by demonstrating its transformative power in my life? Is there something in me that speaks to it as a reality and as the chief reality in my life? Well, that is the second mark of a gospel-centered life. It is to confirm it. Here's the third mark. A gospel-centered life means advancing the gospel. Verse 12, 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now pay close attention here. What has happened to Paul? He's been arrested. He's been shipped from Jerusalem to Rome. He's now awaiting his trial in Rome. In short, the man is a prisoner. And now he says, I want you to understand that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And here's how he goes on to explain. Here's how it has served to advance the gospel. Number one, it has given me an audience I never would have had before. I'm preaching to the Imperial Guard. That's beyond my wildest dream. That wasn't even on my prayer list. I never could have conceived of this. Where my imprisonment has brought me and the door of opportunity that has now been kicked open and swung open for me to make known the beauties and excellencies of Christ. And not just that, but my imprisonment has been a real encouragement to other Christians. As they see me there and as they see me persevering there. They're, oh, they've just grown and now, and now they're abounding in boldness in their proclamation of Christ. Oh, the example of the Apostle Paul. Oh, I aspire to this. I think we can sum it all up, his perspective. We can sum it all up as follows. Paul couldn't care less what happens to him as long as the gospel advances. And everything that does happen to him whether it is good or it is bad from an earthly perspective, he weighs its significance. How? According to just one factor, how is it contributing to the proclamation of Christ? He's going to utter that great statement, isn't he? Perhaps the chief statement in chapter one, perhaps the chief statement in the entire book. He sums it up wonderfully, beautifully. Oh, it's such a comfort in one way, a challenge in another. Oh, for to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Here I am in prison. I think I'm going to be released. And in fact, he was released. He says, I think I'm going to be released. And uh, here's why I think I'm going to be released. Not because I necessarily want to be released. Right? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I die, I know that's better because I'll be with the Lord. But here's why I think I'll be released. Because you still need me. That's what he says to the church of Philippi. You still need me. And the Lord still has work for me to do. And so for me to live is Christ. If I go on to live, there'll only be one reason for me to live. It won't be to maximize my earning potential. It won't be to collect toys. It won't be to live a life of leisure and ease. It will be to make Christ known. It will be the advancement of the gospel. And if I die, will I die? And that to die is gain. Why? Because I get more of Christ. Oh, I have been challenged by this. Does the gospel shape my calling? You know, we each have a calling here. I could rhyme off all the different vocations and callings present in this room right now. Don't leave your calling. That's not the point. The point is this. Does the gospel shape your calling? Does the gospel shape the way you approach your work, your job? Does the gospel shape and determine the way you approach the home? Is your motivation in your job, in the home, in your recreation, in your community, in our neighborhood? Is our motivation to please our boss, our ultimate boss, our king? Are we motivated by a desire to please Christ? And does this shape our approach to life and those callings and all of their varying degrees and splendor and wonder? All of these things, gifts of God to which we have been called, to which we have been appointed. But even in how we fulfill these callings, 
Do we have this principal end, our eye on this goal? Oh, the advancement of the gospel. The fourth mark of a gospel-centered life takes us into verse 12. It means advance, it means defending, verse 16 rather, it means defending the gospel. And so verse 16, the latter do it out of love. And so he's identified these two groups who are preaching the gospel. Some do it because they love the Lord. Some do it simply because out of spite, they're trying to get at the apostle Paul. Paul doesn't really care either way. As long as Christ is proclaimed, it makes no difference to me. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here, that is in prison for the defense of the gospel. And so Paul is defending the gospel in Rome. He has already defended the gospel in Jerusalem, the religious center. He has defended the gospel in Athens, the philosophical center. And he is now defending the gospel in Rome, the political center. And just as he defends the gospel wherever he goes, so too the church at Philippi is defending the gospel. They live in, extreme, in an extremely pluralistic society. As a matter of fact, there is no society in the history of Western civilization that has been so much like the society of the early church than our society today. A very relativistic and a very pluralistic and a very hedonistic society. And undoubtedly, Paul has cause from every angle as he seeks to defend the gospel from all attacks as he defends it from the religious center, as he defends it from the philosophical, as he defends it from the political, and he seeks to make known the universal significance of Christ and the personal significance of Christ, all centered upon Christ's finished work at Calvary's cross. But you know, it is amazing, and we dare not miss this. As you read his epistles and you take into account his entire corpus, the corpus of his writings, you discover that as Paul engages in the defense of the gospel, by far his defense is actually rarely targeting those outside the church. Rather, it is targeting those professing Christians inside the church. And the drift that occurs among those who profess allegiance to Christ. That too, my friend, has not changed in 2,000 years. I submit to you that the greatest challenge to the church in the States, even in Canada today, is not what transpires in Washington or Ottawa. It is not what happens politically. It isn't even what is happening at a societal level. The greatest challenge to the church and the greatest clarion call to defend the gospel arises because of this slow drift within evangelicalism today. The so-called professing followers of Christ. Oh, defend it. Be very clear on what it is. Be very clear on its essential tenets. And by all means, be unapologetic when it comes to proclaiming the gospel and defending the gospel. Oh, it goes against the grain, doesn't it? I've learned this about myself. Maybe you already knew this about me. But I've learned this about myself of late. I have two tendencies I don't like. I say tendencies. They're actually sins. Tendencies is code for sins. And I've been challenged of these things of late. The first is this, my reluctance to speak up or stand out. Just don't like it. I'd rather be alone in my living room with a book. And my reluctance and hesitancy and reticence to speak up or stand out. And my reluctance to choose risk. 
over ease. I'll choose ease every time, hands down. Well, my friends, these are days in which we must defend the gospel. Defend it in our proclamation and articulation and defend it through our confirmation, the transformed lives we live before the living God. Here is the fifth mark of a gospel-centered life. It means living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it takes us, it hurls us way ahead into the 27th verse. Only, let, don't let that word escape your notice. Paul does not say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does he say? Only, meaning what? Above all else. This is of primary importance. This is of utmost significance. Only let your manner of life, let the way you live be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does he mean? He means simply this. Live in such a manner, such a way that points to the excellencies of Christ. Live in such a way that your words, your thoughts, your deeds, your life in its entirety points to the surpassing worth of the Lord Jesus Christ live in such a way that it is clear to all far and near exactly who it is you esteem and what it is you cherish above all else in life. And when Christ occupies this place of preeminence, then whatever our calling in life, whatever our stage in life, whatever our vocation in life, whatever our condition in life, we do it. We do it with gusto with the fullness of our energy and every fiber of our being but we do so in such a way that we magnify the beauty the glory the splendor the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sixth and final mark of a gospel-centered life still in verse 27 it means striving standing and suffering together for the gospel. Look with me again at verse 27. Let's pick it up again right from the start of the verse. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side. For the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. To live a gospel centered life is to strive, stand, and suffer together for the gospel. That word striving, or let's start with standing. It's first in order. It's a military term. It refers to a soldier. He's been given his orders, right? That's your position. And you are to hold it at all costs, no matter what the enemy throws at you. That is your position. You are not to be moved. Striving side by side. The original word in the Greek 
is actually the term from which we get our English word athlete, competing, laboring. And so it conveys this idea of expending ourselves, using up our energy, disciplining ourselves. And we do this, we stand firm together, that is in one spirit. And we strive side by side together for what? For the faith of the gospel to such a degree that we're not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he goes on to say what? This third mark, suffering. Oh, but notice three marks of this suffering, three encouraging words attached to this notion of engaging in suffering. The first is this. Suffering is temporary. Look at the middle of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them. So you're striving and standing together and not being frightened by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. This is confirmation of their ultimate destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This suffering is temporary. There is a day of judgment coming. And notice, secondly, this suffering is ordinary. Shouldn't take us by surprise. Verse 29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. As the Lord Jesus warned his disciples long ago, if they persecuted the master, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As the apostle Paul warned his younger colleague, Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, is inviting opposition, is engaging in suffering. This is necessary, says the Apostle Paul. You've actually been appointed to this. You've actually been called to this. Don't let it take you by surprise. And thirdly, he says, not only is it temporary, day of judgment is coming. Not only is it ordinary, you've been appointed to this, but it is absolutely necessary. Why? Again, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The Apostle Paul utters something bewildering in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I think it is, maybe verse 23. As he writes the church at Colossae, he declares, I rejoice in my suffering. Why? Because I am filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. What does he mean by that? It's fascinating. He doesn't really let us in on the secret there in Colossians. But I think he lets us in on the secret here in Philippians. Chapter 2. Right at the end of the chapter. He's going to thank the church at Philippi for sending Epaphroditus to them. Who risked his life. Who was at the point of death. And had come to them and him, and he's so thankful for them, so thankful for Epaphroditus, the one who had risked his own life, and in so doing completed what was lacking in their affection and service to him. Meaning what? I know all of you at the Church of Philippi can't be with me here in Rome. It's physically impossible. But you have sent one of your own. And in sending one of your own, he has become to me the living physical, tangible manifestation of your love for me. 
Now take that and impute it into Paul's declaration in Colossians 1. I am filling up. I am completing that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. He is absent. And yet God intends for Christ's suffering love for sinners to be made manifest in our suffering love for sinners. We suffer for his sake, completing, filling up that which yet lacks in his affliction. J. Oswald Sanders used to tell the story of a missionary, an Indian, a missionary in the country of India, a Christian who would travel from village to village by foot, extremely poor, shoeless. And he would travel each day, try to travel each day to a new village to proclaim Christ, make the gospel known. And you can imagine what the man's feet must have looked like, a bloody mess, blistered, calloused, open wounds. And on one particular afternoon, he arrived at a village, went to the city square, the center of it, became, began to proclaim Christ. A crowd gathered, understood what he was saying, and basically showed him the door, shunned him, asked him to leave, begged him to leave. Having left the city, he found a shady spot under a tree. He was exhausted. He lay down to sleep. And a short while later, he awoke to discover he was surrounded by the entire village. And the, leading of the leader of the village looked him in the eye and said, we came to check you out while you were sleeping. See what you were all about. And we've noticed your feet. And we have concluded that we want to hear from a man who was prepared to suffer so much to bring his message to us. That simple evangelist was filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. That simple man had become the tangible expression of Christ's suffering love for sinners. And this is Paul's plea for the church at Philippi. This is my plea for us, I suppose. And this is what has been on my mind and challenged me unbelievably so over the past few weeks, the past few months. Oh, to become the living, visible, physical, tangible expression of Christ's suffering love for sinners. My friends, that is a gospel-centered life. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us grace for these things because we know in and of ourselves we are woefully insufficient and inadequate. We pray that we be gripped by the gospel gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for us as poured out in him. We thank you for all those gifts you've lavished upon us and may we take to heart your word, take to heart what your spirit has shown us from that word this day and we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged and comforted and transformed by it. And we do ask, we do pray that it might be for our good, for your glory, the advancement of your kingdom. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.